Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Hey, let me ask you a question. And uh, how do you experience another person's life? Think about that question. How do you experience another person's life? And uh, I, I love music, and I love even the Montreal music scene. And there was an old jazz musician who passed away this past February. He's actually Italian. Rare to find an Italian musician that's popular like that in Canada. His name, typical Italian name, Guido. His name was Guido Basso. Actually, born in Montreal, grew up uh, in, in Little Italy here, started playing trumpet as a teenager. And uh, he, he really looks Italian, eh, with that set of hair back then. So, so uh, played trumpet in his teens, and he became part of one of the, one of the most uh, popular jazz bands in Canada called the Boss Brass. It was, a, it was a jazz band, and one of his nicknames was Stubby Basso. That was one of his nicknames. And I heard a musician friend of his, a recording artist, another trumpet player, also kind of um, an audio tech guy that did, did some of the behind-the-scenes recordings, talk about him, did a, a tribute. And one of my friends uh, posted this and I got a chance to listen to it, and it was a wonderful story, just telling stories about Guido Basso, and they played one of his ballads that he, he performed, and um, it's one of those songs you just got to shut your eyes and listen to because you hear his heart come out in the music, like you hear the intonation of the notes, you hear his breath come through the, 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 the horn, you, you, you almost feel like he's trying to tell you something as he's playing this, and you can sense how strong, like what's inside is coming out in the music. And so this tribute is being shared, and, and the person who's sharing the tribute is not only talking about his music, but talking about his life. And he talked about how in his relationships with musicians and sound tech and others, how he made people feel, how people remembered how this uh, Guido Basso made them feel. And he shares a story about a music clinic with two trumpet players on the stage and a bunch of trumpet players in the audience. And one trumpet player, they were asked a question about high notes. Sometimes you hear trumpet players play those squeaky high notes. And so the one trumpet player uh, made everybody feel bad. They're like, ah, people who play those high notes, it's because they don't know how to play well in the other range, so they only try and push those big high ones, you know? And the whole room went, like, depressed. And then Guido had a chance to share, and he's like, you know what? Everybody has a different gift. Everybody's gift is in a different registry. If you got the high registry, man, play it with all your heart. If you got the low registry, play it with all your heart. And the room just went, whew. Everybody just felt good. And it reminded me how some people have the ability, right, just to impact people. And it made me realize that this guy's life was a witness to the beauty of music and to the importance of people and relationships. And so I come back to that question, how do you experience another person's life, right? How does a life speak? How does a life speak? We've been in a series post-Easter called Living Hope this idea that, that there is real life, genuine life sourced in the resurrection of Jesus. And we started a couple of weeks ago talking about being woken up to that life through the resurrection, what Peter calls in a letter to an early church, this living hope that we find, this new birth that we find sourced in the resurrection. And last week, we talked about how Peter uses the word living word uh, as he writes to these first 
Christ followers in this, in this century and how they encountered the living word, Jesus, and through their encounter with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, they found life. They found this new regenerated life. And we talked about a few clues like their identity, their sense of identity, their sense of resilience, their sense of freedom, and, and also a life of love that came up in these clues as we were talking about that. And today, here's, I want to kind of end this short three-week series in this asking this question. Does our life, does your life speak resurrection to the world around us? Does our life speak resurrection to the world around us? And there's a, a word in the New Testament and then used over the centuries since of what this really is, and it's the word witness. It's this idea, just like Guido Basso, wit, like his life is a witness to the beauty of music and the beauty of people. There's this sense that people who encounter Christ, they become a witness to that life that they found, find in Jesus. And so if you've got a Bible, turn to First Peter chapter 2. We're going to read a few verses from there and, um, and jump into this idea and, and try and answer this question a little bit. You know, how, does our life speak resurrection to the world around us? And, and here's the here's, um, second chapter in this first letter of Peter. You can either listen, follow along on the screen or with your Bibles. So Peter writes, continues to write to them. He says, as you come to him, he's speaking about Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So dear friends, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's just pause for a second. God, we want to be sensitive and um, open, just have, be an open space right now in this moment to your word and to how you want to grab our attention individually and as a community today. And uh, even some who maybe are here for the first time or just been growing with us these last few weeks or months, uh, Lord, may they also just get a glimpse of um, the goodness of life and resurrection and the promises of that for them and how it's calling them into something deeper even in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So if you've been with us the last couple of weeks or you're familiar with this letter, Peter's speaking to Christians and he's speaking to Christ followers and, and he understands them. He understands what they're going through. You can tell this by the words he uses to describe them. He calls, he, he calls them foreigners and exiles, strangers, aliens. You know, the, these words that, that help them understand that Peter knows what they're feeling like in that culture under the Roman Empire that feels like it's oppressing them or feels like, they, they, like there's a contrast, there's a dissonance between what they've discovered in Jesus and how they're called to live that out with the life of the empire and some of the things and systems there. And so Peter understands them and he calls them foreigners for that way, but he also speaks into them and he calls them family. He doesn't just understand them, but he says, but you know, you're part of something that's, that's unlike the empire, that's unlike the kingdoms of the world around you. You're part of God's family. And he doesn't use that word, but he uses other words that help them understand that they are part of something. They belong to something. And out of that, he calls them to this witness, to be a witness, not, not just for the sake of, of talking, not just for, for the sake of, of, of having other people hear something, but really a, a vocation, a calling, that even in this hostile environment that they feel like, because again, foreigners, exiles, strangers, aliens, even in the hostile environment they find themselves in, they can overflow with the life of the resurrection that they discovered, with the life that they've discovered in resurrection, through resurrection, in Jesus Christ, by embracing the living word. And it's really this overflow. It's not just a task, but it's something that comes from the inside out. And he does this and helps them understand this in a couple of ways, and he builds into their identity. He builds into who they are. And I think one of the ways he does this is he identifies them as servants. But I want you to catch this for a second. We didn't read it in the NIV. In the NRSV, verse 16, it calls them, Peter calls them servants. But one of the titles that some of the translators put together said that that next section says, live as God's servants. And I think the reason... We, we can, I can use that word without saying like I'm off, the, I'm off track from the scriptures, is because Peter uses the same language that would have been used for Israel, but for these people who are Christ followers. He calls them a chosen race. He calls them a royal priesthood. He calls them a holy nation. He calls them God's own people or God's own possession. That was all Israel language. That was all language used for Israel, covenant language, family-like language. So they were chosen in a sense they had a purpose. It's not that, that you know, God like arbitrarily said, I'm, I'm for you and I'm against you, but he's chosen them as they come into this life and resurrection. Now they discover this chosen purpose they have. He calls them priests in a sense that they represent God to each other and to the world around them. He calls them holy in a sense that they have this unique vocation and this unique purpose. They're set apart. And he says, you're God's own people. You're God's own possession. Some, some other translations say in a sense they have this sense of belonging. They're like family. And the word servant, and we looked at this last week where Peter pulls from the prophet Isaiah chapters 40 up to 55, Isaiah talks about the suffering servant that would come in the Messiah. But when Isaiah uses the word servant in those chapters, he also uses it when he talks about Israel. 
So like here's chapter 42, verse 1, where I think uh, Isaiah is referring to the Messiah, if you can put that up. He says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. This is using the word servant for the Messiah. A couple of chapters later, Isaiah in, in, in chapter 44 says, but now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. So the word servant can be seen as Israel is God's servant, that God would use them to be a light to the nations, but his Messiah coming would also be a servant. So God will use the Messiah, his servant, to bring hope and restoration to the world, God's suffering servant, but God will also use Israel too. And eventually, later on, Isaiah says that you're a light to the nations. And even though Israel faltered on that vocation, Jesus is the one who truly fulfills it, and then everyone who's in Christ is part of that. Peter's kind of telling them, you are God's servants. You are God's servants. You're part of God's rescue mission for the world. You are part of God's plan in the Messiah, and as he's always called the people to be part of that. And so we, we inherit Israel's vocation, God's servants in the world, to be a light to the nations. When Peter says, hey, he's called you out of darkness into a marvelous light, we get to reflect that light out to the world around us. And in a couple of verses we read, verses 4 to 9, you can notice that Peter contrasts those who receive Christ, those who reject Christ. He builds on this. Some have rejected him. Some stumble over him like a stone. Some receive him and embrace him. Some turn away. Some welcome him. Like we said last week, the life of resurrection is available to all of us, but it's not automatic. We, we must like, receive it and respond to it. And there's this contrast building as Peter's letting them know, look, there is, some, there is people who reject Christ, and there is those that don't. And there's this contrast. But I think at the heart of this, for what we're talking about today, with this new life in you, you are now a contrast in the, to the world. You are now a contrast in the world. You are, are now a contrast for the world because you're now a witness to the life and resurrection and goodness of Jesus. So we are witnesses to that. And we get a chance to alert people to this, to get their attention about it. And there's another metaphor Peter uses as he's speaking to these Christians in that time. He uses the word stones. He says, he talks about Jesus as the living stone, and he talks about these Christ followers as living stones, plural. And these are God, like, just like Jesus was God's visible son as he walked the earth, then we become visible as well for the world to see who God is. So even though Jesus is the word, here he's called the son, uh, the stone. And so the one who speaks is the one who's seen, right? The one who talks is the one who others will see. But you and I, we're also a living stone. We're also God's representatives in the world. And if you've been part of our church community for a while, we, we like to use the phrase, we're God's living and local presence. We're, this is not a prideful statement. Look at us, you know? That's not at all. Because um, you know me and I know you and we know that we're not always the best reflection of that, right? But our calling, our vocation, is that we're God's living and local presence in the world. So our faith also turns into faithfulness as we're present in the world. And so just like living stones are built into a spiritual house, 
And as you know, houses are on streets, and streets are in neighborhoods, and neighborhoods are in cities, and cities are in a region. And so these are visible things. And it's a visible witness. That's your calling. That's my calling. And, and, and it looks like this. How does our life speak? How does, how does our life reflect resurrection to the world around us? How tangible is it? And just, just two, two ways to think about it. It's, it is in our words. It is partly in our words. Like Peter, even to them, says, you get to proclaim or declare the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. So Peter, he's talking about this fact that we are people who use our words to let the world know about resurrection and life. And there's no doubt that we would expect this from Peter. Peter's the guy who, after the resurrection and 50 days where they're praying and the Holy Spirit fills these disciples in an upper duplex in Jerusalem and they start speaking in languages that are the languages of the people on the streets that have come for this festival. And these people start to hear the gospel and God's goodness and the story uh, that they're invited to in Christ through all these languages coming through the windows. And they're freaking out and they're wondering, like, what's going on? What's happening? Are these people drunk? Uh, Like... But they're, they're hearing this message, and they're drawn to it, and they ask, Peter, Peter comes up, and he, for like one of the first times, he stands up and he uses his words to say, let me, let me tell you the whole story. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you what he's inviting you into. And at the end of that, they're like, this just cuts us right to the heart. And Peter invites them to repent, to believe, to respond to that. Peter is good at words. <laughs> he tells the story over and over again. He writes letters. He communicates. So we are called, I think, in that way to use our words to tell what you can of him who called you out of darkness into light. Not all of us are great orators. Not all of us, uh, you know, can, would, be, would have, like, passed with an A in speeches in high school, uh, you know. Not all of us are, are, you know, are the most eloquent, you know, very few of us are ever going to do a TED Talk, you know what I mean? Like, like, this is not what that's about. But all of us can use our words to tell of the one who's called us out of darkness into light, the one who's moved us from death to life, right? The one who's given us new birth into a living hope. All of us can tell our story, and all, all of us can tell God's story, sometimes in the most simplest ways. But before you think, oh my gosh, if it only rests on my words, <laughs> like I'm not a wordsmith, before you think it's only about words or words is the only way, Peter alludes to something that's beyond our words, and he alludes to our walk, our way of life, how we live. And verse 12 is an indication of that, where after he says, Dear friends, you know, I urge you as foreigners, exiles, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. He's trying to caution them, help them understand the, 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 just the, what it, what, the, the temptations around them. But then he says this in verse 12, which is so important. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans, which was basically the general culture. You know, that, that's the word used for that. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Another version, the NRSV says, conduct yourselves honorably before the Gentiles, before the world around you. In other words, live out this contrast 
that you now have because you are in Christ, because you are experiencing resurrection. Even though you feel like an exile, even though you feel like an alien, even though you feel like a stranger or you feel like a foreigner, there is life inside of you. And how is your life speaking? Not just through your words, but through your actions. So it's the sense that resurrection that we've been talking about the last few weeks that we celebrated three weeks ago on Easter, that Easter doesn't just happen, it happens and it continues to happen. Well, resurrection should be noticeable in your life and in my life, or it can be noticeable because it's an overflow of what God is doing in us. It's not this demand that says, okay, put on this coat, look really cool, go out and say this script. No, it's an overflow of what's happening in our hearts. And then it comes out in, in the ways we live and the attitudes and actions we reflect in our relationships and our finances and our decisions. So I come back to this question. How do you experience somebody's life? It's normally through their attitudes and actions. If I ask you today, how are you experiencing your neighbor's life? If it's a neighbor you really appreciate, it's you've identified and noticed their attitudes and actions. If it's a neighbor that really ticks you off, it's probably noticed in their attitudes and actions. And if you're one of those neighbors that really ticks other people off, anyways, you, you got the point, right? So it's, there's something there. So how do you experience a life? And here's the next question. How do you experience resurrection life in somebody? Through their attitude and their actions, through their life. Uh, I've shared stories about my dad in the past, and, and um, there's, there was a moment in his life, and, and if you've been around Westside, you've heard me share a lot of stories um, about my family. Again, sorry to my family that's here, because I, I share a lot of stories about you guys, some good, some bad, sorry, but um, I, I hope all good. But um, in his late 50s, 59 years old, he had wrestled with a sickness for seven or eight years, just pulled the life out of him. And uh, there was a cancerous growth growing in his leg, and he amputated his leg. They had to amputate just below the knee. And in one way, he was free from pain. He was free from the agony of this, all the life that was being pulled from him because of the sickness in his leg. But now he had to recover. Now he's a 59-year-old who has to learn how to walk again with a prosthetic, and for someone like my dad, now my dad wasn't like a physically active guy. He wasn't part of the squash club or he didn't play golf. He didn't run. He didn't play sports. He wasn't that kind of active. He was active in a way where he was always busy. He was doing stuff. He was ambitious. He was, he was, uh, all, he was a visionary. He, he loved to put his mind and his heart and his, his, his time to things. So he was very active, very ambitious, very involved. So imagine my dad one or two months in a rehab home trying to learn how to walk again with a prosthetic, and you're wondering, like, wow, how that's, how's that going to go? And then we find out later, our family finds out later, that he became, like, the highlight of the rehab home. Like, he was talking to people, he'd hang out with the people who were in rehab, he was spending time with them, he was encouraging them, and here's this 59-year-old man who just lost his leg, but there's life coming out of him. And he's sharing that life with other people. And he'd go to the piano or whatever instrument was there. I think it was a piano in the living room or lobby or maybe they called it a parlor or something. And, they, and he was there and he, was just, he would play the piano for people. Now, my dad grew up learning how to play the organ, so he, he, he knew how to play keyboard without 
without depending on that sustain pedal. And so a lot of keyboard players love to hold that sustain pedal because it makes the keyboard sound good for a few seconds. But he was used to not doing that with the organ. So when he got to the piano without a, like his, you know, his leg, what's he going to do? How is he going to And he would play, just played, and people just leaned in. And it just reminded me, even though he lost his limb, even though he had lost part of his leg, there was still life overflowing from him. There was still something that was in there from Christ that was overflowing to people around him. And that just, that reminds me, that reminds me that regardless of our circumstances, resurrection life can overflow from us in our words, but also in our walk, in our life. And remember what Peter says, where Peter calls these people aliens and exiles. Like, just before he says, live such good lives, he's like, I urge you, dear friends, as aliens and exiles, as strangers and foreigners. He, he understands the circumstances they're in, but he also reminds them and calls them to live their life, to conduct themselves in the world around them in such a way that shows the contrast because the resurrection is real and true in them. So even though culture and society didn't embrace them, didn't accept them, maybe came down against them at times, often rejected them, sometimes even harmed them. And we can read all the stories from those, that century and the few centuries after of Christians who were really, really harmed, even physically. And he says this line, and you got to catch this line because it helps you understand what they were feeling like. He says, live such good lives. And he says, though they malign you as evildoers. And he says, though they, they speak bad of you, though they tell lies about you, though they share false ideas about you around the, you know, the neighborhood and at the markets and around the city, though they speak bad about you, though they spread these lives among you, and there was stories of people who would share crazy stories about, these, about Christians just to paint a really bad picture. But he says, though they malign you as evildoers, though they accuse you, live such good lives among them. Conduct yourselves honorably among them or respectfully among them. And maybe if he was writing today, he might say something like, even though they, they try and shut you up, keep showing up. Even though they try and silence you, keep showing up. Let resurrection life overflow from you. And, and I think... He shares a few verses with them to help them understand, like, like for their context. It might not be your context, but it's their context, and there's a little bit of overlap for us too today. Verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, to governors who are sent by him to punish those who wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves or servants. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. It's like that last line. He just wanted to like make sure he, they, they got it. Honor everyone. Love the family. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And what's, what's underneath all of that? It's this idea that every single person that we lock eyes with matters to God, so treat them with respect and honor them. 
and live such good lives among them. And just two of those things from there, he says, love the family. He's not just speaking about your personal nuclear family, the one or two, maybe if you are a family and you have two or three kids and you live at home, or your family, or, or, he's not just speaking about, he's talking about the church as, at large, or the church for them. As foreigners in the world, that you feel like love the family of faith deeply, because in your church is where your identity in Christ is nurtured, where when you get beat up, you go and get cleaned up, when you, a place where you can hopefully feel safe and grow there. He just said a chapter earlier, love one another deeply. He's speaking about those relationships. But we can also say that, and, and this is important, right? Regeneration, because of the, the cross and resurrection, births regenerated love. So we, we, we grow to love differently. So this is important. Before your witness gets out to the world, let, it let, the, let, over, let the overflow of resurrection life start at home. Let the overflow of resurrection life start with your neighbors. Let the overflow of resurrection night start, start with your best friend. Start with your friend. Let the overflow of resurrection life start with the, the co-worker at work. Like if, 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 if resurrection life can overflow, if we can't love and grow into and what that means with the people that are closest to us, I mean, forget about the emperor. <laughs> like we, that's, that's impossible. I mean, if I, if I can't love the person in my house, like scrap trying to love the emperor, which I'm going to have a ton of political differences with, Right? But he starts there. He says, love the family. Start where you are. Let the overflow of resurrection life start in those most intimate personal connections. And sometimes for some of us, that's even the hardest because those are the ones that we're most familiar with. Those are the ones that unfortunately we react a lot more quickly to than, our, than a stranger. So start there. But he does say, honor everyone and honor the emperor. Those are the bookends of verse 17. And I know some of you are thinking, like, I, I, I really struggle with our prime minister. I, the, he said emperor, not prime minister. Maybe I can get around that, you know, I'm a literalist with the Bible, so, you know, we have a prime minister in Canada, not an emperor. But I have a problem with, with him, or I have a problem with Legault, or I have a problem with Pla Valerie Plante or something. And I'm just choosing them because they're the elected officials. I'm not saying I or you specifically have a problem with them, but anytime somebody's elected, you're always going to have a problem with something. And so some of you struggle with some of the leaders and global leaders. When Peter says to honor the emperor, it wasn't a time when it wasn't easy to be in the empire as a Christian. We just went through Revelation, right, last year, and the tension of what it meant to be Christ followers with the Roman Empire around them. To honor the emperor in that time wasn't easy when the emperor thought Christians were sometimes less than citizens. But Peter says, honor the emperor when you're honoring everyone. Because there's this idea that light and life shows up in how we serve our communities and how we pray for our leaders and how we honor Honor doesn't mean agree all the time, but it does mean honor. And I wonder what that looks like for us. And um, I was thinking about this, this story that came out a couple of years ago during COVID in Southern California. I'm not going to mention the churches or the church leaders, but I'll just call it the tale of two churches in Southern California. And uh, 
One church sued the county, and one church served the county. They're both churches. They're both quite large in the States. One was about three or 4,000. One was about 30,000. The one that sued the county was adamantly upset that the county would not let them meet for that time period or that they reduced their numbers or their percentages. And they fought because they said it was against their constitutional right. And they said, we're suing. Watch us win. We have a case. Now, maybe there is a moment when an organization should sue. I'm, I'm not, I'm, we're not getting in that. But I'm just telling you the story. They, they sued the county. The other church figured, man, we're almost as big as Disney. When they get closed, we get closed. When they get open, we get open. And they, 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 they thought and discerned and said, you know what? Maybe we can't collectively worship in the same room for a while, but we're still going to learn. We're still going to grow. We're still going to connect. We're still going to disciple. We're still going to care. And they, they were asking the Lord, Lord, how can we serve in this moment? And they found out that if a, a, one after another, some smaller food banks were dropping because they couldn't afford to meet the needs that, that happened immediately in that region. And so this church, because of their numbers too, mobilized themselves and they went to the school district and they went to the government office and they went to the nonprofit sectors and they said, how can we serve? And over that time period, they became the largest food bank in Southern California. The largest food bank in Southern California. And while one church sued the county, this church saw thousands come to faith. And even in restricted environments, they baptized 5,000 people over the course of, I don't know, 18 months or something, all during lockdowns. And I, I, was, I just was thinking about that as I was reading this text. What would that mean in the different scenarios we find ourselves in when Peter says, honor the emperor, honor everyone? I'm going to ask Phil and the team to come up as we come to a close this morning. But again, let me just ask this question. How does someone experience your life? How does someone experience my life? How will someone experience resurrection life in you? How will someone experience the life that we talk about in our church community? Now, I know I gave you a story, and it maybe seems black and white. It's not. It's nuanced. It's complex. And, and you know, we can go back and discuss all these things. But that, that very basic, very basic, basic level, the heart of it is this. The scriptures here as we're reading them are calling us to allow what God is doing in us to overflow around us. And some, even, in a, even in a context, in a culture where there's a contrast, how are we called to let resurrection life flow out of us and through us and to others? Because this living hope we've been talking about, it's, it's sourced in resurrection. But here's the important thing. It's not just for you. It's not just for me. That, that would be selfish to say that, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm so glad that I have living hope. I'm so glad that you've given me new birth. I'm so glad that the power of the resurrection that raised Jesus from the grave resides in me because of your Holy Spirit. But it's not just meant for you. It's not just meant for me. It's not just meant for us. It's meant for the world around us. And this is part of our calling. This is part of our calling, part of what it means to be a witness through our words and through our walk. It's not a hobby, it's a vocation. It's not a task, it's a calling.
It's not a demand. It's a life that overflows from us individually and collectively as a church. So here's how I just want to wrap it up in this way. If you and I or we or have been called from darkness into light, if we have moved from death to life, if we've woken up to the beauty and power of the resurrection when we encounter Jesus, the living word, then let's expect an overflow. How will your life speak? How will my life speak? How will people experience what's in you? You guys can start and as we, as we um, close here. But, and I just, just, just think of these last words that Peter says after he encouraged them to live such good lives. He says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's something here. When they see your life, when they see these honorable deeds, it's not a magic pill. It's not a silver bullet. It doesn't mean that after you, you know, mow your neighbor's lawn nine times, then they're going to say, praise Jesus. Like, it's not like that. But there is something here saying when they see your life, when they see your honorable deeds, they will glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, that from now until then, until the day that, that Christ visits us, until the moment when God transitions what we understand as life now into the new creation, from now till then, some will respond, some will reject. We, Peter already acknowledged that. Some will be hospitable, some will be hostile. That's true. But, ima- but just imagine for a second, just imagine for a second that through the overflow of your life and through the overflow of our life, some will one day glorify God. Some, when the day God visits us, they will also be glorifying God because of the overflow of your life that God uses to be a witness to the resurrection and the life to those around us. Amen? That's... I. I just imagine that. And I, and I already, there's people in your life, there's people in my life, there's people in the trajectory and reach of our church. They, I believe that they can be part of this. I believe that they can be part of this. But if we hold it to ourselves, we're not being a witness to them. And if we only use our words, we might lose moments when God's going to use us. But when we allow God to use our words and our ways, our our words and our walk, something extraordinary can happen when we surrender this to the Lord. It's His work, not ours, but we can engage it. Amen? Let's pray together. Let's pray together as we... God, and just first of all, thank you because when we talk about overflow, it's because something's already been happening or happened and you are just um, already at work in us and we say thank you. And you've already made the life of resurrection available to us. And I know many here have responded and have experienced and have encountered you. And even in the midst of ups and downs in their life and struggles and difficult situations, they, they know that there is life in them through you because as they've responded to the gospel. So thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that. But we also in, invite you just to grow in us the sense of calling and vocation through the image of the servant, the image of the stone, through the practice of our words and the practice of our walk. 
God, we don't want to keep this to ourselves. And so we so long to be uh, a witness, people that would be alerting others around us to your goodness and your good news, to life that's also available for them. And I know, God, that just as those who read these words from Peter wrestled through the implications and the complexity of what it meant to bear witness and alert people to the resurrected life in their circumstance, we also are immediately thinking of some of those struggles and obstacles and complexities. And while they can be there, Lord, may we hold true to this calling and vocation. You make it possible through the work of your Spirit in us. So may we be those kind of people and grow into that kind of community continually. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.